going forward. And, there, and there's never been a time in your salvation history, however long you've been born again, that you have, that you have not, that you've loved the Lord as much. I mean, it should just be more and more and more as the day goes. And the closer we get to heaven in eternity, the more in love with Jesus we should be, the more devoted and consecrated and dedicated and obedient, growing, growing, sanctifying in progressive sanctification until we see the Lord. Can't wait. Well, take your Bibles. Please turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. We're going to continue on in our verse-by-verse study of this great letter of Paul's to the churches of Galatia. Remember, the churches of Galatia and South Galatia, we know at least probably four of them, uh, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Derbe, and Lystra. We've got the background. We know in chapters 1 and 2, Paul's concerned about, um, about dealing with his apostolic authority. His authority as an apostle has been attacked, and therefore the church maybe won't trust him. So he has to make sure they know God chose Paul to be an apostle. It was by the will of God, not by man. And then his message was divine revelation. The gospel was given to him. Not, he wasn't taught or trained by anybody else, but the Lord Jesus re- was revealed to him, and uh, the gospel was made known. But it matched up the gospel of the other 12 in Jerusalem, and so there was no contradiction of what the gospel is. But they had to listen to Paul, and, and they had to submit to his authority as an apostle. But we know that false teachers crept into the church after he left, and they were saying, hey, you're right. Paul, Paul said faith in Jesus? Absolutely. How is, how is one justified? How are you made right with the holy God? Paul was right. Trust in the Lord. Faith in Jesus. Plus, you want to be a child of Abraham and get all those blessings of Abraham from Genesis 12? You've got to be Jewish. So you have to put yourself under circumcision and the Jewish law, and then you get the benefits. See, they were taking the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, and adding works to it. And we saw this morning out of Galatians 3, 10 through 14, that anyone who puts themselves under any law is cursed. Because Deuteronomy 27, 26 and Deuteronomy 28, 58 says, Cursed is anyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do all of them. You want to be right before God on your own? It would require perfection. You never disobey a command of the Lord at all, ever, your entire existence. And then in the next verse, we found out in the book of Galatians that Paul says, but there is clearly no man is justified by their works. It's clearly evident in the sight of God. Therefore, the just shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2, verse 4. And then we saw, since we are under the curse, we are under the condemnation and guilt and penalty of our sin, we have a Christ redeemed us from under the curse. Well, how did he do it? He bore the curse in his own body. Look at that again, Galatians 3, and we're looking at verse 13. Christ has redeemed us. Remember that word, ex agarazo, means to be taken out of the slave market, never to return. Now, I didn't get to do this, so this is a little extra, but can I throw this out to you in Hosea? Remember, oh, it was two, two springs ago that I preached through some of the minor prophets, verse by verse, and we did Hosea. And you know that God had told Hosea, Hosea, you go marry a woman named Gomer, and, and you'll have children with her. And so he went and he married a, a woman named Gomer. This woman, as, as Hosea knew, would be unfaithful, or was unfaithful at the time, depending on your interpretation of the text. But we know that she was an adulteress, and that... As much as Hosea loved his wife, she just ran and ran and ran. And do you remember how that story unfolded? Ho- Hosea loved Gomer, and he did all he could to get, keep her in the house. He even built a hedge around the house, it says in chapter 1. He put things in her path so she just couldn't get out. 
he'd be like, honey, stay home tonight, please. I love you. I'm your husband. You're my wife. And she'd be like, Hosea, I've got to get out. I've got to go. And she'd climb out the window. She'd do anything she could to get away from Hosea's love. And she even went with other lovers. And remember how he would even go, and it, it, there's just some, some idea in the text that he'd go and he'd put like some food at the, at the doorstep of, of her lover's home because he knew his wife was starving and, and maybe not her needs not being taken care of and maybe he would knock on the door and he'd leave and then she would find the things. And so he was loving her and she was rejecting him and running the, the opposite way all the time. But in Hosea chapter 3, she ends up, it appears on, in the slave market, beaten, battered, and greatly used. Sounds like us in the slave market of sin, doesn't it? God said to Hosea, Hosea, you've gone after your wife and gotten her many times. Do it again. Go and love a woman who's loved by another lover. She is an adulteress, but you go and you get her back. And then he said, because this is a picture of my love for Israel, because here's what he says, they worship false gods, pagan gods, and they love their raisin cakes. Can you believe it? God is offering himself to Israel as their God, so they could be his people. And they say, we don't want your love. We don't want you. We would rather have the the raisin cakes of the pagans in trade for eternal bliss with you. What a trade-off. But isn't that like our world? We offer the world Jesus Christ, a free gift of salvation by faith alone through the grace of Jesus. And what do they do? We don't want that. We'd rather have the raisin cakes of the world. Well, what does Hosea do? He goes, and with 15 shekels of silver and a barley, uh, and uh, over and a half of barley, he goes down, and it appears that whole combination is about 30 pieces of silver. He goes down, and he buys her out of the slave market, and he takes her home again. That's what Jesus has done. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He paid our whole debt so that we could be set free, never to go back in the slave market again. We are his forever. Such a great passage of, of security there as well. Well, then it says, um, verse 13, having become a curse for us, middle of 13, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Remember that from this morning? Jesus, as he hung on the cross, he was cursed of God. So do you understand the stumbling block this would be for a Jewish person? How can our Messiah, the king of our country, the king of our nation, from the, from, the, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, how can our king be cursed by God and still be our king? It doesn't make sense. Unless you realize the one who, who knew no sin became sin for us. That's what's going to open the eyes of the Jewish people. Can, can I throw one more interesting text to you? I didn't get to, see, this is all the leftovers of my morning message as I thought about it this afternoon. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's um, some issues in the Corinthian church. You know how they're, going astray in all sorts of things. There's envy, division, strife, contention. But there's also a misuse of spiritual gifts. And it appears while the spiritual gifts were, being, were operating in the local church that people were shouting out, Jesus is accursed. Jesus is accursed. It says that in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 and 2. And P- Paul says, listen, nobody of the Holy Spirit would ever say Jesus is accursed. I think they were shouting that because of the fact that he hung on the tree. And, and they were maybe mocking that, saying, Jesus is cursed. And Paul says, that's not, that's not right. That's not appropriate spirit-filled behavior. But anyways, just kind of a thought about that whole idea of hanging on a tree. What are we dealing with tonight? 
tonight as we look at the text beginning in verse 15. You know how I drilled home this morning? The law brings a curse. You put yourself under any law, any religious ritual, you force yourself to obey all of God's laws 100% of all the time, and nobody can do it. All the law can do is curse you. It penalizes you, it condemns you, it makes you guilty, and it sends you to hell. So anybody that adds anything to salvation, anything, a religious rite, if you add baptism to salvation, you add any good work, a communion, anything that you add to be justified, that's, you are condemning yourself. You are put under a curse. So then, you know what the, the false teachers would have said to the Galatians? Well, then why would God have the law in the first place if it's so bad? If it's really that bad, why even have the law? Paul's going to answer that. Because the law has a purpose. The law is good and holy. But it's not for, it, it was never intended to save anybody, but it was meant to do something else. And it's going to tie into salvation, but it's not related to it. But um, it's going to prepare people for, for salvation. So just bear with me as we go through a very interesting and difficult text. Let's pray first. Father, open our eyes and our heart to the text here of Scripture. We, we pray that we would be encouraged in the gospel message that Christ died in our place as a perfect substitute. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And all who trust in him are children of his. We are heirs of the, inher of the inheritance with him. We receive the, the blessing of Abraham, that spiritual blessing, so I thank you, Father, for your whole plan of salvation. And I pray that we would understand these truths, that we would be able to apply them and rejoice in them. And may this strengthen our faith and our confidence in Jesus. We pray for your glory and honor. Amen. Okay, so my first point in verses 15 through 18 is this. Paul says, the law doesn't replace the promise. The promise is what he made to Abraham. Here's what God promised Abraham. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you in an unconditional covenant three things. Physical land, spiritual, um, physical descendants, and spiritual blessings. That's Genesis chapter 12. And it was unconditional. And we'll review that a, a little bit tonight because of the text. So that is the promise God made to Abraham. Abraham, no matter what you do, no matter what your descendants do, no matter how obedient, I will give you physical property on planet Earth. We know it's Israel. And God even gives us the parameters of it in the Old Testament. Do they have it yet? No, they're living there, but they don't have all of it yet. Then God promised physical descendants. Abraham, you will have as many descendants as the stars of the so sky and the sand of the sea. That is a guaranteed promise for Israel, for, for the Jewish people. And then the spiritual blessings. In you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. God's promising spiritual blessings through Abraham to all the nations. And that's, what we, that's where we get in. We get the spiritual blessings of justification, regeneration, and um, the glorification that comes with it. So that's the promise. Here's what Paul says. When God brought the law in, the law did not usurp or take over the promise. And here's why. The promise came first. The promise came first, and the law came much later. There's a couple of reasons. So let's look at verse 15. The first reason. Paul brings up a human illustration. All right, this is just a human illustration he brings up in chapter 3, verse 15. Brethren, Paul says, and I love the tenderness of that. He's called them foolish and bewitched and all sorts of things. But now he is so, so much more tender. And from now until the end of the book, you'll see brethren, brethren a lot. He gets very tenderhearted because, hey, sometimes pastors and, and leaders and those in authority, they have to be a little bit hard, hard. But then there has to be a times of tenderness, too. And you, you get both here from Paul. Verse 15, brethren. 
I speak in the manner of men, meaning he's going to give just a human illustration. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. We understand that terminology, don't we? If you make a covenant with someone and you confirm it, you sign your name on the line or whatever, then you're liable for it. And no one can annul. Now, of course, we do have ways to annul agreements and contracts, and we have ways to add codicils to wills. And so we can annul and change it in, in our culture. But there were at times in the Greek and the Roman culture, mostly the Greek, when if a person made a contract uh, or a covenant with another party, it was a done deal. You could not annul it or add to it. Remember the king of Persia? When under Esther's, remember when Esther was the queen and Mordecai and Haman were there? And the king said, on the 13th day of Adar, every Jewish person shall be killed. And nobody, not even the king of Persia, could change his own, his own statement. He made a, a statement, and there's nobody, even the king couldn't go back on it. What could he do? He could make another, uh, another statement saying the Jewish people have a right to defend themselves. But Paul's just making a, a kind of a general statement that we understand in the human realm when somebody makes a contract or a covenant, particularly a covenant, that nobody can annul or change it. If that's true in the human realm, how much more so in the, in the spiritual realm? Look at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. Now, I want you to see the promise. See the importance of the promise. Not only is the promise guaranteed because, hey, once you, once you make a covenant, um, you, you don't go back on it. It is, for, for Abraham and with God, it was unconditional. And I better, better spend just a moment to review that. Take your Bibles. Go with me to Genesis 15. I better, I better review this just to be sure everybody catches it. In Genesis chapter 15, here is when God made the covenant with Abraham about the three promises. Land, physical descendants, and spiritual blessings. Genesis 15, uh, look with me at verse 8. God has made the promise to Abraham. And Abraham said in chapter 15, verse 8, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So, he sa- so God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. So can you picture this? He cuts the animals in half and lays half over here and half over here to leave a walkway between the animals. Two, you know, you have the dead carcasses. And the idea was, when you made an agreement with somebody, you would walk with the other party, and you and them would walk down the aisle between the dead animals, and you were saying, I will agree to my part of the, of the covenant no matter what. It is a binding covenant, all right? When the two would walk through the pieces of dead animal. And the, the, I think the Jewish thought of that, the covenant thought, was there's different levels of, of, of covenants in the Old Testament. One was the animal covenant, where uh, let's say I made an agreement with Howard, a, co- a covenant with Howard, and I gave him three of my sheep. 
Well, I could break that covenant as long as I can get my three sheep back from him. So if I can get my three sheep back, hey, the covenant's over. It's not that, it's not binding. It's binding, but not that binding. And over time, my sheep would blend in with his sheep, and I'd be, have a hard time getting my sheep back, and then it's very binding. Do you see the idea? There was also like a salt covenant where you would make an agreement with another person, a covenant, and you would take a pinch of salt from your pouch and put it in their pouch. And if you could get all of the grains of, sa- of salt back out of their pouch, then you can break your covenant. Is that a pretty binding covenant? Very, I mean, how can you get your own grains of salt back? Very, very difficult. A very binding covenant. The idea maybe with the animals split in half as you walk through them, you would be able to say, I will be committed to this covenant until these two pieces of animal can go back together and they can walk off again or fly off again. It's that idea. It's, the idea is, it is bi- I am bound to whatever I agree to. Now, as we look at this, Abram drives the vultures away, verse 11, verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep came upon, uh, fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall, not, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came, here's verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Did, what was Abram doing when that smoking, that smoking oven and burning torch was walking through the pieces? Where was Abram? Sleeping. He was not participating in walking down. So he had no obligation to fulfill. All he did was receive, receive, receive. God made a promise. Abram, I will give this to you no matter what. I don't, it doesn't matter about your behavior. You don't have to do anything. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. I will simply give it to you. It is by grace. So that's what God did when he made the covenant. But who did he make the promise to? Let's go back to Galatians 3. Because I want you to catch this next verse. Galatians 3, verse 16. Now to Abram, Abraham and his seed were the promises made. We would think seed being all of his children. Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, all the Jewish people of of all time. But that's not what God was intending. Look again at verse 16. God does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one. The promise goes to Abraham, but to one seed of Abraham. And who is that one seed? Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's going to get the inheritance of Abraham. Do you understand that? God promised physical land, uh, physical descendants, and spiritual blessings beyond measure to Abraham. But Abraham's getting the promise, and it's going to one seed. Not Isaac. He's dead and, and gone. He'll be raised up someday and enjoy the the future that he has with the Lord. But the, all of the promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Every single one. The seed is Jesus Christ. Abraham knew, I'm waiting for a seed. And that seed will be the fulfillment of all of God's promises to me. Abraham's going to die before he gets the promises. But there will be a seed of his, and it's Jesus Christ, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, raised up to die on a cross in our, for our sins in our place, This one is going to inherit all of Abraham's blessings. Now, if you want to inherit any of Abraham's blessings, where do you have to be? If Jesus is the only one that gets the inheritance, where do you have to be? 
in Christ. Not by works, but by faith. And if by faith you are in Christ, you are an inheritor of all of the things that Jesus inherits. He inherits all the kingdoms of the world. He inherits all the authority and all the power. Everything is his. Second, uh, for 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, Yes, and all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. He is the fulfillment of everything. And if you want any part of it, you've got to be in Christ. So when, listen, do you want to know how great the promise is? First of all, when God makes an unconditional covenant, he will follow through. He will not break his promise. We break promises all the time. He will never break his promise. That's verse 15. Verse 16, all of the promises go to one person, Jesus Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you don't get it. You don't get the blessings. You don't get the spiritual regeneration. You don't get anything unless you are in Jesus Christ. And how, how do you get in Jesus? Not by works of the law, but by faith alone. And then there's another reason why the promise of God is so powerful. Verse 17, this promise to Abraham. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Paul says, listen, God made a promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham, and 430 years later, God gives the law. What came first? The promise. So what's greater? The promise and the law given 430 years later can't change the original con conditions. What were the conditions? Zero. God does it all. Abraham just receives. And when the law was added, it, was it never changed the original condition. God made a promise to Abraham. I will give this to you regardless of anything else. All right? So th this is great. There is a problem, though. From Abraham until Moses gets the law, it's not 430 years, it's 645. So how, well, how do you deal with that? From Abraham until Moses, it's 645. When Abraham got the promise to when Moses got the law. But the Bible says 430. Here's why, I think. Because when God gave the promise to Abraham, he got old and he died. Then who did God reiterate the promise to? Isaac, his son. And then when Isaac got the promise and God said, Isaac, I give you all the promises of Abraham. And then Isaac dies and who does God re reiterate the promise to? Jacob. And so God says, Jacob, Abraham's dead. Isaac's dead. You are going to get the promises. And one of your descendants will be the seed that it's all fulfilled in. From Jacob going to Egypt, the last time God mentions the promise until Moses gets the law, 430 years. The Bible is always true. The Bible is always right. So Paul says, listen, the promise is greater than the law because God made a promise and the law can't negate that or annul it. All of the promises are found in Jesus Christ and the promise came first by 430 years. The law came much later. And then look at verse 18. For if the inheritance is of the law, remember the inheritance is all the promises of Abraham. If it comes by the law, then it's no, no, it's no longer a promise. If God says, in order to get the promise, you've got to do something, he just changed the original conditions. The original conditions were, just receive it by faith. And if he adds the law to it, now the whole condition's changed and the promise is no longer a promise. But look at this. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. There were no conditions. It was unconditional. By faith alone, not by works of man or works of the law. This is an interesting word at the end of verse 18. But God gave it to Abraham. 
great Hebrew word. It's the word kirizomai. And, it, and it's, um, I, sp- I probably said it wrong here. Um, it's like, yeah, kirizomai. And in what it means, it has the word charis in it. Charis is grace. So the word grace is the root of the word give. God, it's the, it's the idea of this. God graciously gave to Abraham, no strings attached, no, no works needed. God graciously gave it as a free gift to Abraham by a promise. The promise is so much greater than the law. So if that being true, why would the Galatians, having the promise, why would they now say, okay, let's go back and do works? Why would anybody in the church, with Jesus dying on the cross for us, ever go back and say, well, now, to, to, for God's favor, I've got to do this, 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 and put myself under the law, or I have to add something to my salvation. It's getting baptized, it's taking communion, it's doing something plus Jesus. Wow. Um, then God's promise is no longer promise. It's not even salvation. Now it's a works thing, which only brings a curse. All right, so that's what Paul's uh, dealing with with these Judaizers and the law. Sure, the, the, law, the promise is greater than the law, but now the question is, why would God even have the law in the first place? If this is true, the promise is greater than the law, and the law doesn't change or annul the promise, then why would God give the law in the first place? Why not just skip that whole part of history and go right to Jesus? This is our final question tonight. Let's look at verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Why, why is there the law of God? If, if it doesn't help and it doesn't add to our salvation, and if the promise was so great without the law, then why do we even need the law of God? Here it is. It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come, and that we know the seed from the previous verse is Jesus. Till the seed, Jesus Christ, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. All right, some hard verses here. Here's the idea. The law is so inferior to the promise. When you put the two and you look at the two, the law is so inferior for a number of reasons. Verse 19, it was added. It came later. We already saw that, but it was added because of transgressions. Now, this is kind of a hard one to understand, but let me see if I can put this in play. Before the law, was there sin? Absolutely, there was sin. And people knew they sinned because of their conscience. Romans 2 says people have a conscience given by God that either excuses us or accuses us, but the conscience is sinful and it's deceitful and it will trick us. So, But the conscience God gave us, so we know that we're sinning. Take, for instance, a situation at the high school. Right before Christmas, I think I mentioned it once before, but I have a button on the wall, and it's a button to reach the secretary if I needed a secretary, the secretary for something. But, but we all have phones, and so those buttons are all disconnected. They, they mean nothing. Um, but the intercom went over one day while I was teaching. The secretary used the intercom system instead of my phone. And all the kids were like, well, that's weird that, you know, and they're like, does that button work, Mr. Wita? I'm like, I don't think it works, but don't. So then I said, don't touch it. Now, they all know if they touch it, it's sin. They, they know they shouldn't do it because they asked permission to do it, and they knew, they knew I was going to say no. They just know they shouldn't be touching the button on the wall. I think we all know that. As soon as I gave them a law and I said, you cannot touch the button, what do you think all the students wanted to do? 
oh man, their sin just increased and abounded. Then it was their whole weight. They had to do anything they could to push that button. They were manipulative. They tried to walk over there, try to throw something in the wastebasket and go over there to touch the button. I mean, 15 people touched the button. And I said, don't touch the button. As soon as I gave the law, what happened to the sin? The sin just abounded and increased, like, like exponentially. They knew it was wrong without the law. But as soon as I gave the law, they knew they were violating my standard. Why did God give the law? People knew they sinned before the law, but when God wrote it down and it was in front of everybody, they knew they were violating a holy standard of a holy God. They knew we are guilty, we are stepping over the line of a holy God, and we deserve punishment, guilt, and the penalty that comes with it. So God gave the law to reveal the awful sinfulness of sin. Here's how Paul says it. Take your Bibles, go with me to Romans chapter 3. We'll look at three quick passages in Romans. Romans 3, for a little better detail. Romans 3, verse 20. God, Paul says, God added the law because of transgressions to show that sin is a violation of God's holy standard and deserves the wrath of a holy God. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law just made it crystal clear we have offended a holy God. We have rebelled and violated a holy God's standards. Now go on to Romans 5.20. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Look at how Paul describes it here. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. You put a sign on your yard saying, do not step on the grass. What does everybody that walked by want to do? They want to step on the grass. That's just the way we are. The speed limit says 30. We could all drive carefully with this, if we, there were no speed limit signs. But as soon as you see it says 30, what do you want to do? Go 35. The interstate's 65. What do you want to do? Go 70. I mean, if, if the speed limits were 70, what would we all want to do? Go 75. Because where the sin is, it just abounds. It's our, it's our sinful nature. God sets a standard, and we want to just step over the line just to show that we can do it. It's the rebellion in us. And then look at chapter 7. So we looked at chapter 3, chapter 5, and now chapter 7. Verse 7. What shall we say then, Paul says? Is the law sin? Is there a problem with the law? What's the answer? Certainly not. There's no problem with God's holy standard. What's the, pro what's the problem with? The problem is with you and I. God is right. It's just that we're wrong, and we just want to trespass and violate against his will. So on the contrary, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. That's coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Yeah, Paul sinned, but as soon as he saw the holy standard, you shall not covet, what does Paul want to do? He wants to covet more and more and more, and it produced all sorts of evil desires in his heart. And then he goes on, and again, the, the law is holy and good and pure. It just reveals the awful sinfulness of our sin. And then it shows us we're guilty before a holy God. It's going to drive us to the Lord, I hope. Verse 9, Paul says, I was alive once without the law. I thought I was alive without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul thought he was doing just fine. But when he clearly saw you shall not covet, and then he saw that he was coveting, 
he knew it killed him. He knew he was guilty and he deserved death. So verse 10, and the commandment which was to bring life, Paul thought, yes, if I live by God's commands, I'll have life, a prosperous good life. The result, the, the opposite result happened. When he saw the law of God, it didn't make his life better. It just realized he was a wicked sinner and it condemned him and it killed him, it says. He died. Verse 10, and the commandment which was to bring life, he wanted it to bring life. Actually, it brought a curse. It, br it brought death. Verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, just, and good. There's a purpose for it. God added it so everybody would clearly see, wow, we have violated a holy God. We have rebelled against him. Now, back to Galatians for our final text. Verse 19, let's finish up this verse. So the, the law was added just to show the sinfulness of sin, to make wrongdoing a legal offense against God, until Jesus, the seed, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Let me show you again why the law is so inferior. God had the perfect law, the holy standard. He gave it to angels. Angels gave it to Moses. Moses, Moses gave it to the people. You got a lot of people involved there, right? You have God giving it to angels, angels to Moses, Moses to the people. But when it came to the promise, who did God give it to? Directly to Abraham. All right? And, and by the way, was Abraham involved? No. God did it all by himself. He made the promise himself. So the law required mediators, required two parties. God said, you have to do this, 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 this. The people had to say, okay, we'll do this, 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 this. God said, if you don't do this, I punish you. If you do this, I bless you. They said, yes, okay, we understand. So there were two parties and two mediators. It was a big, big thing, but very inferior. Um, verse 20, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Very hard text, but I do think here's what it means. A mediator has to go between two parties. Angels and Moses were between God and the people. But when it came to Abraham, who walked that aisle by himself? God alone. So with God, he's only one. You don't need a mediator if you have one party. And God said, I make all the promises and I will do everything. You do nothing but believe. So we don't need a mediator for that. God is one. He made the promise and he's going to give it to everybody. The law, no, you needed mediators. God said, you do this, this, this. And the people said, okay, we'll do this. And only for a purpose and only for a time. So verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Does it go against God's plan of salvation? The answer is certainly not. It's got a good and a holy purpose. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, if that was the purpose of the law, well, then righteousness would have been by a law. If, if obeying the law could somehow give eternal life, well, that's how righteousness would be found. But it's impossible because the law was never given to give life. All the law could do is kill. It could only condemn, penalize, and bring guilt and shame. That's all the law could do. Reveal sinfulness. And then our last verse for tonight. And we're going to pick up verse 23 next week. But the scripture, God's law, the scripture, has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's the final thought about the law and the gospel. Picture this. Picture the law is the jailer. All right, so the law is the jailer, and 
Inside the jail cell is all humanity because the scripture, God's holy standard, literally imprisons and shuts up in a jail cell all of humanity because we have all sinned. And we are chained, shackled down with heavy burdens and chains of, with sin because the law condemns us. We are sinners who have violated the law. So it's like the scripture confines all of humanity in a jail cell and nobody can escape. You don't get out after so many years. You are there forever. You are shut up. But God says, I will make one way of escape. There's only one way out of this jail cell that the law has imprisoned you in. What's the one way? Faith in Jesus Christ. Exactly. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. It, the, w October 1st, 1993, when I placed my trust in Jesus Christ, I got out of that jail cell, out of the condemnation of the law, out from the penalty of the curse, out from a future in a lake of fire, and I was put into God's family. Because scripture confines the entire world guilty of sin, a violator of God's holy standard, and, he, and it shuts us up in a prison. Just realize, people driving by our church all week, are in, many of them are imprisoned in this prison, and the law condemns them, and they have no advocate. They have no savior. They have never trusted Jesus. And if they die there in that jail cell, where do they go? A lake of fire, hell. So again, look at verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin, all humanity under sin. And here's why. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, that's how you get it, might be given to those who believe. If you believe, you trust the Messiah, you are released from that prison cell, and you are given eternal life. It's such a simple message. It's a glorious message of good news. What we need to do this week is get that out to people, right? We need people to hear that so they know, wow, they are guilty before God. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you get out. What a, what a message. So maybe 2016 could be the year that we as a church really, we can get outside of these walls and reach the people in our community. We can reach people here. We can reach our family members, people that we work with. Maybe that would be just an application here because people are living under the law and going to hell all the time. But God's grace is there for them if they would hear and let's be the ones that will deliver it to them. So let's get that message out. And, and then by our life, and we're going to get to chapters 5 and 6 where we talk about how we live in the gospel. What does a gospel life look like? And let's live with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, self-control. Let's let those things be evident in our life. So people could say, wow, that person looks and talks like Jesus. They... They are not ashamed of Jesus. Um, so maybe that would be a good challenge for tonight on this new year. Father, thank you for this book of Galatians and just the whole study of the law right now, the last couple of messages. We just realize that the law can only bring a curse. All it can do is reveal our sinfulness and it condemns us. It shows us guilty before you and it provides um, a consequence of eternal wrath. But Jesus has taken us away from the curse of the law and he has given us eternal life by faith. It is a gracious provision that you made. You gave Abraham a promise, one 
one-sided promise. It was unconditional. And then you added the law to show that every person in this world has transgressed your law. We have stepped over the boundary. We have violated your holy standard. But you have also given us the solution, the way out. It is through our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we love him this week more and more. May it show up in our attitude with our spouses and our children. May they see the love of Jesus Christ in us. May we have compassion on those who are lost that we run into this week. We're going to meet many people, and maybe you will open the door for one or two or maybe three people that we can share this news with. Maybe we can give them a gospel track, Father. Maybe we can explain to them the love of Jesus that sets people free, takes them out of the slave market of sin. So thank you again for teaching us and reminding us about the gospel, about our Savior, Jesus. We love him with all of our heart and soul. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We want to be with you. But until then, Father, may we be found faithful, loving, and serving you. Thank you for this local church and all of our families. Protect us this week. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name.